Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hello. We are so excited to be meeting with the author of an incredible new book. Years ago, I said I wanted to read something like a female James Bond, and this kind of is like that. And we are so excited. It's always lovely when you ask for something and you get exactly that. Such a fun read. Absolutely delightful. It's scary. It's beautiful. It's historical. It's everything. Christine, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jessica and Julie. It's great to be here. Oh, we're so excited about this book. Can you just give us a quick description of your book? Sure. It's set in World War II London, and it's about Paddy Bennett, who gets employed by the Royal Naval Intelligence in London. And she ends up working for Ian Fleming, who turns out later to be the author of the James Bond novels. So in this book, you'll see a lot of the influence that led Fleming to create his characters. Paddy becomes involved as an operative in the famous Operation Mincemate, which was just the subject of a movie. The British decided that they were going to fool the Germans about where they would invade the south of Europe. Everybody knew it was going to be Sicily. So they decided to float a dead body off the coast of Spain, where Germany had lots of spies. On the corpse would be some papers suggesting that the invasion point would be Greece. The ruse worked. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, but Patty becomes involved as an active agent in that scheme. I love the moment when they're describing this plan. And one of the women says, oh, good heavens. And of course, this time they assume all the women are about to faint. So they say, oh, we're so sorry, ladies, if you need some water, like, you know, basically fan yourselves, it'll be okay. And she's like, no, 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 that is not what is happening. I just knew about this months maybe years ago. And so I loved that particular moment when they're describing it and what it means about the gender roles and everything that's happening at the time. Okay, proceed on. Yeah, it's just so much fun. It's just such a fun read. So tell us, we're so interested in your publishing journey. How did you find your agent? Tell us about this whole journey. Right. Well, my journey started many years ago now. I was working as a lawyer. Don't hold it against me. It wasn't for very long. And I just decided one day... I wanted to write a novel on the side, as you do. And, you know, that's why I never believe people when they say, oh, work is so stressful, I have no time to write. I was obsessed. So I would write every spare moment I had and eventually gave up work to write full time, which was a luxury, obviously. And then I joined the Romance Writers of Australia and the Romance Writers of America and started entering contests reached the final of a few of those. And so I received, you know, at four in the morning, as is the case when you're in Australia, an email from an editor saying she wanted to buy the book that she'd judged in the contest. But as I had a lot of good advice from other authors, I did not say yes immediately. I had a list of agents that I'd been wanting to query. So I was on the phone all night to these agents in the US and eventually one offered representation and I accepted. And then by the next week, 
by how to deal with a different publisher. It was a dream sort of scenario, but a lot of work to get there. It was about five years, I'd say. I'm aging myself, but it was back in 2000, around that time that I started writing. So there wasn't a lot on the internet at the time. I think there was an agent who did a blog called Miss Snark, and she sort of gave the insider track on the industry. So I used to learn a lot through her. But yes, that is how I got published initially. And it was a historical romance. I remember Miss Snark. I remember that I knew somebody who was like, I know who Miss Snark is. And I was like, what? What? Yeah, she said many very spy-like, evasive things about who Miss Snark was. So I know someone who knows. (laughs) I know someone who knows. Do you know? No, that's just such a lovely touch point. I started in publishing around 2004. So I remember how everything was back then, you know, using mail metering machines and everything coming in over paper in giant manuscript boxes. And you're right, everything was so different in terms of the internet and how everyone found everything out then. And I love that you were able to navigate it then and now because it's two different challenges, but you did it. And this is so exciting. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to decide to work in historical fiction? I got to the stage with historical romance that I really started to want to tell the woman's journey in more depth. And I mean, I had always really researched my books. That was just something important to me, but I started to make it the woman's story. And it just seemed like a natural progression to move into historical fiction. Also, because I was published in the United States, Penguin in Australia started to buy the rights to those books and I got to know an editor there and she said oh look you know we really want you to write something for us and you know all that and I was very flattered and I liked her a lot so to me that was more a move of the heart than perhaps the mind I started writing historical fiction in Australia for Penguin but then I just saw all of these amazing books like the Alice Network by Kate Quinn and things coming out of the US and I actually had not known there was a market. If I'd asked, I probably would have found out, but I didn't know there was a market for European set fiction in the US outside of the romance genre. So then I decided, well, why not try for New York? So I got a new agent, Kevin Lyon. She's amazing. And she's just been fabulous with this new launch. So Sisters of the Resistance was the first book I wrote for William Morrow, and that came out last year. And of course, One Woman 4, here we go. (laughs) is out. So I'm sure everyone is so excited to hear your first page. Can you read to us? And so we can let our listeners just dive into this wonderful book. Oh my goodness. Okay. Chapter one, Pointe Verdun, Bordeaux, France, June 18, 1940. Patty. The quayside at Mauvaison was in uproar. Women draped in furs and jewels perspired heavily under the harsh summer sun as they comforted distressed children or struggled with suitcases crammed full of their most prized possessions. Men laden with more baggage clutched fat wads of useless French francs and tried in vain to secure a passage aboard one of the ships that were idling at the port. Babies wailed in their nurses' arms, urchins darted about on errands or lifted treasure from the pockets of wealthy refugees. Eight vessels of various nationalities, none of them British, were anchored at the mouth of the estuary. Word had spread that their respective captains refused to take anyone aboard, 
at all, much less ferry them to safety across the English Channel. So we haven't met Patty yet. That's the first page. <laughs> well, something is about to happen, I think, on the next page that shows how smart and organized and thoughtful and clever and good she is at navigating a really tough circumstance. And then one thing I love about that, I hope that's not too much of a spoiler, she's going to do something really smart, really organized, really clever in the moment. And later, that is going to be remembered by somebody important. And I love that you have all of these seeds of things that people do that show their character. And then later, someone remembers it and it gives them an opportunity. And I think that's really cool. Yes, it's not a spoiler because it's in excerpts everywhere. Patty takes charge of the evacuation, basically. She sees a couple of soldiers who are trying to take down names because they want a passenger manifest. And he's totally overwhelmed. So she sort of organizes everybody. I'm good at lists and she sits up on the wall and takes all the names. And of course, along comes Ian Fleming, who actually did organize that particular evacuation from Bordeaux. He completely took charge and had everybody away by nightfall. It's actually a fictional event. It didn't really happen that way, but Patty happened to be in France around that time. She was studying architecture at the Sorbonne. So I thought, how good would it be to have them have this little encounter? And then they start off with you know, a relationship before she gets to naval intelligence. Well, but we get to see her mind working. We get to see, okay, she chooses an ally. She reads a situation. She knows there's a problem. She jumps up and fixes it, even though probably people weren't generally letting women take charge very often then. And I thought that was so cool that we got to see how many layers of intelligence she has right at the beginning. Well, there's one incident late in life that really shows her character. I couldn't use it in the book, but she was mugged outside her house, actually, when she was in her 70s. And this is the character of the woman, he was trying to pull her rings off. And she said, I knew from experience that it took a lot of dish soap to do that. And I thought he was going to take my finger with it. So she kicked him where it hurt and he ran away. <laughs> and she said it was because she'd done a lot of ballet. She had the requisite flexibility. <laughs> so, you know, she hit the papers again for that. And I just thought, oh, this is a woman I have to write about. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's so interesting. And we talk at the Manuscript Academy a lot about like how you can see a scene, show a character. And so we know exactly the person that we're dealing with. And of course, if you had been like two truths and a lie <laughs> about this character, I bet we could have chosen that answer for her because it's just so characteristic of what you'd expect. Kind of going back to this next question. So you have characters who are double and triple agents, both personally and professionally. And how did you keep track about who knows what, when, and how and create that structure for this book? That's a good question. Scrivener would be the short answer, you know, the software program where you can move things around. To be honest, I don't know because the Operation Mincemeat story was really a complete narrative in itself, but it was missing a couple of key elements, which was personal conflict, which I created for the characters, and an antagonist who was on the spot because they basically did everything to prepare this dead body and sent it off. And then what do you do? You just wait to hear the news. So I created another character. Her name was Friedel. She was actually a real person. I used a real person and her real experiences up to a point and then she becomes involved in Operation Mincemeat. 
but that is fictionalised. So it's all, I don't know, I've got a twisty mind. There wasn't a lot of conscious planning, but I did know I just could keep track of everything, I hope, and anything that was an anomaly or whatever was taken out in revisions. That's what revisions are for. (laughs) So I guess plotter or pantser? I try to plot, but at heart I'm a pantser. So when I'm writing, I have to sort of, forget what I've planned. But then if I am going off track a little bit, I'll go back to my little cards on Scrivener and I have plotted it all out. And usually it turns out much the same as I've planned, but I just don't like the constraint of feeling like I have to go there because the characters just evolve as I'm writing. So Sometimes I think, well, yeah, would they really do that thing? And so then something more interesting might turn up and I'll go with that. Well, I think it's so interesting. We were talking just this week about pacing and I feel like this book has amazing pacing. And what's interesting is you're so instinctual within scene that in some ways, some of the scenes are so much going on, (laughs) but it feels like the perfect pacing so that your brain can keep up with it all, even though it's going every which way. That's why I asked that question, because I think it's interesting because it was obvious you had to plot it, but then that worked out like so well. Tell us about your writing process. Do you sit down every day at the same time? Do you have rituals? Like, how do you get to that place where you're doing that so effortlessly? In my mind, effortlessly. I'm not sure that's true, but. (laughs) You know, I'll have to tell you the truth. I could tell you what writers should do, but, you know, don't do this at home, people, because (laughs) this is a terrible, terrible process. (laughs) I, I spend a lot of time researching, so that's months of work. And I'm really thinking about the story, even though I have already written a complete synopsis and the end product will probably be much the same. For some reason, I need to noodle about for a long time. And then I work very well under pressure. So (laughs) I got into this habit and it happens for every book. This is my 15th book published and I just can't change it. I just then sit down and I might have about 10,000 words written at that stage. And then I just have to make myself sit down every day at the same time. I do not work to a word count because I find that I will write rubbish just to make the word count. (laughs) It's the same time every day and that will be 4 a.m. So getting up early for this interview, is really not a problem. And, you know, every day until it's finished. But I'm always down to the wire and it's not fun as such but I think something in my brain I just need that time to noodle and then it all comes out and I do go back a little bit as I go so then the end product is usually quite a good draft and of course I revise and so forth yeah that makes sense because it feels like you are living and breathing within the world. <laughs> that makes sense that that's all of your focus. I was starting to sweat when you were talking about your process. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's terrible. It's just awful. I hate it. Oh, 10,000 words and wow. <laughs> <laughs> But I can't help but wonder if someone writes the exact same number of words every day because they meet their goal and then they drop off. Does that make the work feel less 
spontaneous and doesn't make the things that just kind of happen in a wonderful way less likely to happen. There were some moments when I couldn't even tell what you were doing. Like, for example, there was a scene where we go into a familiar nightclub. And I don't know what it was, but I was like, this is not going to end well, but I don't know why. And so the evening gets worse and worse. The male companion picks a fight in a really astonishing way, sends her off. She gets mugged. He comes back. She's okay. And then he leaves again. And she's basically left being a spy in her own personal life. But I don't know how you made it so that we felt dread with no evidence that we should feel dread leading into that scene. Was that something that just happened as you were writing it intuitively? Like, can you talk more about that? Because that all came together wonderfully. And I'm looking for like, almost like if you flip over a tapestry, I'm looking for the work that you did behind the scenes and I can't find it. And that's really cool. Oh gosh, thank you. I think when I'm writing, especially with Friedel, there was just a tension. I could feel it myself. When I'm writing, I can just feel that tension and maybe that comes through. I don't actually know what I did either, to be perfectly honest with you. So yes. But what if it wouldn't have happened if you'd been like, that's it, 5,000 words a day? You know, maybe it wouldn't have happened if you were on a schedule like that. Maybe you had to just be in exactly the right creative mood to make things like that happen. So not saying that I'm arguing in favor of pantsing, but pantsing has its benefits. Yeah, I think so. But I do think that people who keep to that word count can write marvelous stories too. I think that it's just a different way of working. I really believe everybody can put energy into their prose, no matter what their method is. Yeah, that's true. They probably also have really clean desks. It's really interesting. And I think, Jessica, what you're talking about is like definitely world building and thrust of story. And I think this is what also made this book so magical. You have characters in difficult circumstances, still making the best of things with beautiful parties and smuggled caviar and then living for the moment and the relationships and the celebrations and the drinking. And you just captured that so beautifully. So you give us dread, but you also give us hope at the same time. Did writing romance help writing these scenes because it's almost the same thing as like expectation and dread and all of these themes you see in romance hidden in a historical kind of thrillery novel. I think romance writing was a very good training ground for getting over yourself and just getting on with the <laughs> job. You know, there aren't too many divas in the romance world. We're all very focused on getting that book done. There are wonderful romances written and I love reading romance too. I think it's a generally positive outlook that romance writers have and that's what I bring to the historical fiction. I don't think I could write a book set in the Holocaust. That is not my outlook. Just I love to see the fun because people do in the direst situations, people see the funny side of things They're trying to escape the war. Patty is born into a very privileged family. She lived in one of the most expensive pieces of real estate in the world. And shakes live there now. So (laughs) in the Boltons in London. So she didn't see the seamy side of life so much. And I think there's a lot of glamour in this book. And I think that's a bit of a theme for the book. It's got the Bond vibe a little bit too, but it's much more historical fiction. It's super interesting. I guess I missed the fact was in the book, do we know that she grew up like in this space? Well, she was born at Claridge's Hotel. That's where the Queen had her wedding reception and 
things like that. I think that it comes through, but hopefully she's not portrayed as a snob. Yeah. Or, um, no, not at all. She seems very practical. And it's so interesting too, because like you're Australian and I'm in Maine and Jessica's in New York and, and we're all taking this in. And so we are using our point of view. And so you always wonder like what piece you might miss because you just missed a reference, you know? And that's what makes reading so interesting. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting yeah. going back to what you said about even in the darkest moments, people are doing what they can to keep their spirits up. And you have these characters. This description, I think, astonished me the most when you have these characters who are in love. And after a while, during the air raids, they don't go to the cellar anymore. They put on a record and dance. I'm sure some people did have that reaction. I'd probably go to the cellar forever. But um, <laughs> can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think it was partly the British have always been pretty reluctant to give in to the enemy and they always wanted to keep the stiff upper lip. And I suppose when you go through so many air raids, by that time it was, I think, 1943, and they'd been through the worst of the blitz, but it would be the occasional air raids still. And they were just a bit tired of it and maybe a little bit fatalistic. I don't know, but I just felt like I would not be traipsing down to the cellar still. Maybe it's a little bit like the pandemic. After a while, people intellectually, they know, oh, I can still catch it and it can still be serious. But there comes a point when you're just tired of continually taking these precautions. I thought about that too. I think we only have so much capacity and patience for being at high alert for so long. One thing that amazed me close to that scene, there's an unexploded bomb on the roof and she dangles out the window with him holding her ankles with a broom to just <laughs> sweep it onto the ground. No problem. And they're just like, okay, <laughs> everything's fine now. That actually happened. I don't know if she used a broom. I couldn't find that out that I thought, what could she use? But he actually did hold her by the ankles and it was an incendiary bomb. So it wouldn't have exploded, but it would have caught fire and it would have burned the house down, basically. And it was a terrace house. So it wasn't just their house that was at risk. It was all of the houses in the row. So Patty actually did that. She was just the perfect heroine. We'd love to give out three copies of your book when it is out in the world. Could you please give us a code word and people can email the code word to us um, or secret mission name, whatever you prefer? Oh, I think it has to be money penny, doesn't it? <laughs> so the first three people to email academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with money penny in the subject line will get a copy of this fantastic book. Let's go back to James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> like, who's your favorite Bond character, actor? And do you have a favorite movie? I think Daniel Craig, Casino Royale. I thought that mm. was the perfect Bond movie. And it made me so hopeful for what would come later. And I don't think any of them really lived up to that. But it had a strong female character. I always love, I mean, women generally always love to see a strong female character and she doesn't have to be a bond you know bond is bond but she has to push against him and she was the money person and he was gambling with the money so there was that tension there I thought it was really a great movie and I always loved Sean Connery he was the bond but I think Daniel Craig revived the franchise in a really spectacular way 
I like talking about your female characters. They support each other. They're not out just trying to get male attention. They're out trying to help each other too. And there's this really interesting scene. I thought the image of this was so striking. It's a country club where the swimming pool's side has been blown off. So the swimming pool's just destroyed. But they're playing tennis around it as if everything's <laughs> fine. And they've got all this sparkling glassware. And a woman tries to tell another woman that her boyfriend is actually awful. <laughs> and I love that. I thought that was just such an interesting image image and a lovely scene to see because we don't get to see a scene like that very often. Yes, well, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that in real life, Ian Fleming had a girlfriend who was not treated very well. Her name was Muriel Wright and he called her Moo or Moo Moo. And she used to go and buy cigarettes for him. And she was a bit of a sad character, really, because she was a beautiful woman. She was a champion skier and polo player she was the original bond girl basically and patty can't sort of let it rest she's got to just say something because she can see that fleming is romancing all these women just like james bond and she just has a word but muriel doesn't listen <laughs> so now i'm obsessed by all of <laughs> in fleming's lovers and girlfriends i love when you read a book and it opens up just the research game and i think we've seen that with like game of thrones and chernobyl you know so do you see this movie prospects in your head are you hoping it goes there or are you oh, oh <laughs> i want it so bad what do i doesn't want a movie I feel like Operation Mincemeat sort of stole my thunder there. Uh, <laughs> the movie with Colin Firth and Matthew McFadden. I don't know. My story is completely female-centric, so it's quite different. But I would say they, they won't make another Operation Mincemeat movie for quite a I long see time. It. <laughs> How many Dunkirks were there? How many Dunkirks? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, we can hope. Uh, yeah, yes, I, I, I'm going to put it into the universe right now. And there. I love that this could have been such a scary, stressful read. And yet you do something that we suggest to our writers so often, which is you have a broad emotional and aesthetic range. And I think it's so wonderful that even when they are talking about Operation Mincemeat, even when we could be very scared and kind of grossed out by the details of what they're about to do, there's this moment where we see just this delight where the women are all clamoring, hoping that they're picture is the one found on the dead soldier and I thought that was just really cute and really lovely. Yeah that actually happened too and it's never quite explained why the photograph wasn't of Patty. Maybe it was because she was married or maybe she just refused because she would be quite likely to refuse if she didn't really want to be in that beauty parade and I'm not sure that they actually knew the details they just knew that it was going to be used in an operation. So they all brought their photographs and then they chose one out of the many. So that character is Jean, who uh, features in the novel too. Do you think it's that they just wanted to be a part of history, even knowing that a lot of people wouldn't know that aspect of it? They wanted to know that if they did this thing that perhaps really helped the good guys, that one picture that probably was totally soggy from being in the ocean from so long and could hardly be seen at all, they knew that that was them and in some little part they had changed history. Do you think that was kind of the impulse too? Oh, I'd say so. And Jean was interviewed much later in life and she seemed to get a real kick out of it. To explain this a bit further for those who don't know the story of Operation Mincemeat, 
what they had to do was actually create a legend for this dead marine who was found off the coast of Spain. So they wanted, if the Germans investigated as they would, all of what they call the wallet litter, which was everything that was found on his body, they would find that he was a real person. So somebody walked around in the uniform he was going to wear, to wear it in and make it look less new. Paddy had to pretend to be the girlfriend and go around and be the girl in the photograph. They built up this little story and they had letters from his banker and letters from his father and letters from Pam, the girlfriend, just to create this entire character. They were telling a story that they were hoping the Germans would believe. I love that they told her to go around like to the engagement ring shop. Me is annoying as possible <laughs> so everyone remembered her so they'd say oh yeah she was here and they'd think she was real I thought that was really cool yeah that was very fun I mean who doesn't like jewelry shopping anyway and she decided to get Pam a nice big whopper of, an, <laughs> of a diamond too so fun so what's your number one tip for aspiring writers I think the number one tip is to write. You can spend a lot of time doing things around writing, blogging or social media, all of that sort of thing, and actually lose sight of the fact that you need to hone your craft. And the only way to do that is to write. So that's my number one tip for aspiring writers. Yeah. And just one more thing is the only thing you can control is that book and that story. Everything else there's so much luck, good and bad in publishing. But if you keep hold of that, that that is what's important, you can weather a lot of ups and downs in the publishing industry. And every now and then we go through this period, we, I like to call losing the will to live. The publishing industry can be tough and we say, oh, you know, everything's gone wrong. But if you just remember you're a writer and you'll always be a writer and you will always come back to the story and take your confidence from making that story the best it can possibly be. And whatever happens, put on a record and dance. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> and have a drink and <laughs> shake wear, it, like, not stirred. <laughs> I know. And like put gravy on your legs. Like, oh, it's all good. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about <laughs> all the different ways people fake stockings, gave stockings? The stockings are a really interesting motif of the story. <laughs> It never occurred to them just not to wear stockings. Right. It's so fun. Yeah, I've heard about drawing the line, but the turkey gravy is new. <laughs> that actually happened. I won't spoil that one. That's a surprise. Oh, okay, yes. Oof. Oh, my gosh. We are huge fans of Dana Kay. Can you talk about working with Dana Kay so everyone understands why this is so special? Well, Dana has been fantastic in just being very proactive. Dana does my publicity work. They've been pitching me to all these different publications. I've got some articles writing really interesting pieces for all different publications, lots of podcasts, all that sort of thing. So I'm really pleased with the work they've done and they're so communicative and give lots of updates. I'm really happy to be working with Dana. And we're really happy that Dana brought you to us. So thank you. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for having me. I just, it's been a delight. It's just lovely to meet somebody who's so enthusiastic about the book. So I actually love it. We um, are. Yeah, it's yeah. so much fun. I took pictures of it and put it on our Facebook group with all the post-it flags I put in it. I know I like a book if it has a ton of post-it flags. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Great tribute. Thank you very much, Jessica and Jill.
All right. Thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. Thank you so much. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.